1: series for the next four weeks, we are going to be studying the 23rd Psalm. Now, um, to say that the 23rd Psalm is popular, I think that would be an incredible understatement because it is perhaps one of the best-known sections of Scripture found in the Bible. If you go to... um, any um, Christian bookstore, anything like that, you're going to walk in there and, um, man, I would imagine you're going to find this scripture in some form printed on multitudes of things from, you know, a coffee mug or a T-shirt or a a bumper sticker. It's just well-loved. It's loved loved by Christians. Oddly enough, it's really loved by non-Christians as well. In fact, there's many non-Christians who, if you say this or if they read this, they're going to recognize this psalm they may not even realize that it comes from the Bible, right? But this psalm, for 23, Psalm 23 has captured the hearts and the minds of um, the pious and the profane for 3,000 years. So to say that it's popular would be an understatement. And then, in addition, I was kind of studying this and I was thinking about this. This psalm is really popular in our pop culture. It is. Um, it's said in movies. Like, for example, if, if if a movie has a funeral or something like that, oftentimes they're going to quote this psalm. And in addition to that, um, this psalm is found in a lot of music. It just is. I was thinking about some of the music that it is found in. So I did some research. This is not um, in-depth research, but um, I wanted to find out how many songs in our culture use parts of this psalm in it. And um, according to um, Wikipedia, and you know if you can't count on Wikipedia, what can you count on, right? According to Wikipedia, there's 53 songs that use this psalm in them. And I was looking at the list, and I could only identify two of them as being From Christian artists or Christian musicians, Uh, I just got a partial list here. You got, um, some of you guys may know this, I don't know, but um, Pink Floyd uses this psalm in a song, The Grateful Dead, U2, Coolio, um, Gangster's Paradise, I don't know, you know, he quotes this, Cayenne West, Megadeth, The Offspring, Jay-Z, Fallout Boy, Tupac, all of them and many more have this psalm somewhere in their song. So this is a well-known portion of Scripture. And I would say this, I was thinking about this, um, just a side note, um, as I was looking at this list, I was, I was thinking this, and we should be on guard here, just because you hear a song that quotes Scripture, it does not follow that is necessarily a Christian song, so you could ask the um, artist of Megadeth, right? I don't know, but really, it's, it's not a safe assumption to assume that everyone who quotes Scripture is a, 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 a Christian. But nonetheless, as I was studying this and as I've been thinking on this, um, I was really wrestling kind of with this whole question. Like, how is it that a psalm that was written 3,000 years ago by King David It only contains six verses. There's only 113 words in this psalm. How has it for this amount of time captured the hearts and minds of every generation? I think it's a good question. And I thought on it, and and I'm sure there's a lot of answers. um, But my conclusion was this, and I think it is a right conclusion, that this psalm is not... Like any other piece of literature or poem or something you might read, it is literally written by the hand of God. Like all Scripture is, it speaks to our soul. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says this, He, God, has placed or set or put eternity into our hearts, into man's hearts. So, so so, it doesn't matter if you're a Christian. It doesn't even matter if you believe that God exists. It does not change the fact that every person alive has had eternity set in their heart, and your soul longs. Your soul longs to have that whole field. Maybe you read this psalm, or you don't even know where it comes from, or you hear it somewhere, and... Uh, and, and, and you don't know anything about it, but your soul has an ache. And I believe this. When the soul hears Scripture, the Word of God, it's drawn to it some way, some how. And that's what I think is going on with this psalm. I think because it's the very Word of God, that people hear it, and they attach themselves to it. But because of our flesh, because of our sin, because of our love of sin, what we tend to do, the flesh tends to do, is to push it down. But the soul remembers when it hears this stuff. And it holds on to it. It clings to it even if it does not properly understand it. And that's going to be true for all Scripture. But for our text, our Scripture that we're going to be studying for the next four weeks, Psalm 23, we want to understand it. We don't want to understand it as though we would push into it and pull out of it what we want. We want to understand it. Because, see, God wrote all of Scripture, and he wrote this Scripture, this psalm, specifically because he wants us to know something about him. Because of these 113 words that God has written, there is something that he wants us to know about him. So today, that's exactly what we're going to do. We're going to begin by looking at the very first two verses. That's all we're going to cover today. And I believe we're going to see some things that our God would have us know about Him. And this is the Word of God. This is God-breathed, God-revealing, disclosing things to you and I that He would have us know about Himself. And I believe in these first two verses we are going to see four things that the God of of the universe would have us know about Him. So let's jump into it. This is tremendous stuff. And I'm going to spend some time on some words, man, because there are some beautiful words in here that I think we have a tendency to overlook. So let's begin. First five words, you're going to see this. I believe God would have us know this about him from the first five words, that God is exclusive. Let me read the first five words. The Lord is my shepherd. Let's stop there. Let's talk about this. Now, Psalm 23 is, I believe, universally accepted as a very comforting psalm. And it is comforting. It is a beautiful, comforting psalm. But we cannot overlook this. The first five words, I'm going to tell you up front as we study these, the first five words are exceedingly offensive. They are offensive. To the natural ears, these first words, Five words are offensive, but until you hear them and until you are offended by them, then you do not know or realize your need for salvation. The first time I understood what God was revealing about himself to me, the truth that we're about to look at, that he's exclusive, it is offensive. But it was at that time I, was, I realized that I'm not God, my way is not right, and there is a God that I have offended and I have sinned against. So when you see these first five words, you may be thinking, how How are these five words offensive? Let's walk through them, and I think you're going to see they are exceedingly offensive to the natural ear. First thing I want us all to notice are the very first two words. They're exceedingly important. And if we miss this, we're going to miss Psalm 23. It says, notice, the, it's an article, Lord. All right, the Lord. Notice it does not begin by saying a Lord is my shepherd. It does not say one of many lords is my shepherd. It doesn't say my feelings are my shepherd, my knowledge is my shepherd. It doesn't say the things that I like and I love and I desire are my shepherd. It clearly says the Lord is my shepherd, the the one and only God of the universe. And when you hear this, It can be and is offensive, especially to those who would say, oh, whoa, whoa, time out, time out. There's many gods. There's many ways to get to God. But David begins this psalm, inspired by God the Spirit, by smacking us in the face and saying, no, sir, you do not get to. You and I do not get to come to the Scripture and impose upon it what we so desire we don't get to define God. God defines God, and he begins by saying, the Lord, one. Jesus said the exact same thing. John 14, 6, he says what Jesus says, and we know this, and by the way, this is another really popular one to put on a coffee mug, but he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one. Absolutely no one at any place or any time. No one comes to the Father. That's God the Father, ex- except through me. And that's God the Son. Exclusivity. It's offensive. Right? The way, the truth, the life. David says, the shepherd. There is no other. Jesus is the exclusive shepherd. And this message of being the only way is not a popular message at all it's not popular here in the states it's not popular around the world it's not it's just not popular nonetheless it's truth and i praise god that a man stood up before me and told me this offensive truth so that i could be made aware of the fact that there is a god i remember and i'll share this with you guys um because you may not know this um but um well you'll know this part most of you if not all of you uh my wife and I, um, for uh, nine years, we were blessed to serve in a predominantly Muslim setting in East Africa and Dar es Salaam, and as I, I, we had a lot of Muslim friends, and um, one thing, I, and we traveled all throughout the Middle East. One of the things that I discovered that I didn't know before was that um, in Islam, they are allowed to read certain sections of the Christian Bible. Now they don't call it the Christian Bible, but there's certain things. That they hold from the Bible, that we, our Bible, that is authoritative. There's three sections. First being what they would call, I guess in Arabic, the Torah, or in Swahili, Torati. It's the first five books. Interestingly enough, the second is what they call Zabur or Zaburi, which is um, the Psalms. Third thing that, that they can um, read as well and study is in, the Injil, Injili, which is the Gospel. We had um, some um, some of the printed up, but Bibles, not Bibles, but uh, they just contained the the Torah, the uh, Zaburi, and the Injil together, and we could bring it. And my Muslim friends would not be um, offended by that at all. And so we could read through it and talk through it. And often I'd begin my conversations, "Would you mind, you know, if we read some of Zabur?" And they they would be, they'd be fine with that. Now. There was a section of town where we lived at, and we had made some friends with some, some, some Muslim, a Muslim family. It was kind of a predominant Muslim family in this one section of town, and so we spent a lot of time with them. I've shared some of this with you guys, but this was recalled to me this last couple of weeks as I've been studying. Um, there was a section of the town, a little corner. There's a corner of that section, and a lot of the young guys would meet there, and they would talk, and it was called, and I know this is going to sound crazy, and I guess it is kind of crazy, but it was called Taliban Corner. And you said Taliban corner, and, and they would meet there, and, and they would talk. And so I would go there about once a week, maybe more, maybe less, and uh, I would sit with them, and I would talk. And I would talk about Jesus, make no doubt about that. In, um, in that culture specifically, I, I had learned this, that uh, you don't soft-sell Jesus, because in that culture specifically, as I was saying, um, to speak softly of anything you believe in is to say that you don't really hold it to be that true. And so I had no desire to no one to think that perhaps that Jesus was not that important so I would firmly establish my beliefs and I would I would I would talk about them. There's this one young man that was kind of a leader of that group and we had a relationship and I'm talking to him about Jesus, and we're saying lots of things. And, and I asked him, I said, listen, can I talk to you? Can we go through um, the Torah, Torati, Zaburi, and the Injili? Can we talk about that? He said, absolutely, I'd love to do that. And so I take him away, not away, just down the road, because um, there's no need to get a, a big group involved in this, because, man, that can get sideways really quickly. But uh, we go off, and and I begin. I begin in the Torah and um, Torahti, and we begin going through that. and, and I can't remember if we hit Zaburi or exactly all we talked about it. But no, we can't. We we, co- we covered this whole this whole concept that there is one God, and you only access Him through Jesus Christ. There is no other way. And we go into the Injil, and we're talking about it. And, and, and guys, I got to tell you this. The, the God, the Spirit, was on that conversation in such a heavy and profound way. So I'm sharing this exceedingly offensive tr- truth in a section of town where it would not be received well at all. If not, it would have been hostility towards it. But nonetheless, it's the truth. And I'm sitting there, and I'm telling this, and I get to uh, this other, the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to him except through the Father, and I ask him, and I'm looking at him, and I feel the weight of the Spirit on him. His eyes are like saucers, his mouth is open, and I ask him. I say, "Hey, listen, man, would you like, would you at this time like to repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior?" And he was really quiet. I kid you not, this man. He started crying, man. started crying, and I saw it, and the power of God, the Spirit was there. And he looked around, and I could see he was thinking. It was on him hard. And and, and he told me, not today. He said, can you come back next week? And um, I pushed it some more, man. Because I'm telling you, when God the Spirit's working, you're going to push, man. But he kept coming back, come back next week, come back next week. And so this is such a true story, man. I I came back next week. I go to the Taliban corner, and I start looking for this guy. And they say, he's not here. I go, what happened? Where is he at? They said, interesting thing happened. Interesting thing. They said, after you met with him last week, he came over, and the next day he bought a bus ticket, and he went to a city five hours away. Once again, disappointed, not surprised. I've seen that happen many times. I've read the book of Jonah. If you haven't, I would encourage you to do so. Jonah thought he could run from the Lord, but you can't run from the Lord, and I am convinced that that man, God, did save that man But I have to say all of this to let you know and allow you to understand it is not a popular message. It's not. But until someone hears it, they're not going to know that there is a God and that he is holy and that they are not. It is through these truths that are unpopular among the men and women of the natural who have not been saved to hear. But I implore you, just because it's unpopular, please, please, please do not think it need not be said. We say it with love. We say it graciously. But no, this is the word of God. And it does. It does have power. But he's, he's clear. It's exclusive. It is exclusive. The. Next word. Look at this. He says, um, the Lord. I want to talk about this for a second. Once again, we could talk about this all day long, but I want you all to notice this. Some of you may already know this, but I, I'm quite certain some of you may be hearing this for the very first time, especially if you're just picking it up on, on the podcast or something like this. But any time you see in the Old Testament the word L-O-R-D, and it's in all capital letters, it means that the, the name of God was used. And instead of writing down the name of God, they just write Lord capitalized. The name of God as revealed in Scripture is Yahweh. So he is saying, to make sure we have no mistakes, the Yahweh is my shepherd. Now when I say that, I realize um, some people they will say and that's okay, it's cool. They'll say something like this, well why didn't they just write down God's name? right? Why why are they they making it all funny with capital L-O-R-D? Well, Back in the day, they believed the name of God to be so holy that you could not write it down. Once again, i got to say this. I realize in our day, in our time, in our culture, we sit there and we'll say, what's the big deal? Why can't you write God's name down? Because in our time, guys, come on, in our time, we got no problem offending the name of God. Now, it's not a big deal to us. It's not. And I was thinking about this. We live in a time and a culture and a day where we we just abuse the name of God all the time. In fact, we have gotten so lazy about it. We've made it easier. We live in a day and an age where we have gone the extra mile to make God's name more or smaller or, or to, to, to crush it or to make it make it make it make it less holy, right? We just say OMG. No time in history has a culture sought ways to make God's name more small than we have. So we live in a time where people going around abusing the name of God, and it seems not to offend us at all because we're sitting there just OMG, like it's a little thing to crush the name of God or the concept of God. But no, not these guys. It's altogether different. So they're saying Lord, L-O-R-D, because they believe, and rightfully so, the name of God is holy. Now, one other question that you might have, and I just want to answer this quickly, because some people often have this question, well, who named God? Who, who named, or did God get his name? Well, God named God. Exodus 3, you can look it up. Moses says, what's your name? Basically, he says, I am that I am. In Hebrew, that is Yahweh. It is to be. I am in the act of always eternally being, okay? So, I know we've kind of covered just a few words so far, but we're going to pick up speed here, but I want you to see this, all right? It begins, the, all right? It's offensive, the. I mean, not, not, not many, the, who, Yahweh, Lord of the universe. Then he goes on, next two words. These are important words. He says, is my, okay? You can circle it. I don't want to spend too much time on it, but this word, my, my, It's a possessive pronoun, meaning it is um, um, a possession of. There's relationship involved, okay? It's a personal, intimate possession. Is mine, belonging to me. We're intimate together, interwoven. And then he says, the Lord is my ownership, what? The picture is of a shepherd. All right. (laughs) Okay, I know we can look at that many different ways, but I'm going to look at it this way once again. I think that's a tad bit offensive. I mean, it is seriously um, to the natural ear. That's going to be a little bit offensive, right? Because Scripture just said, "Every man, woman, and child, we like sheep." Now I realize we don't have a lot of people in here who probably know a lot about sheep, but I'm telling you, for the most part, I don't know really many good things about sheep. Like, like I Google this stuff. I'm trying. Is there any? football team, basketball, any sports team named the sheep. I I couldn't find one. If you know one, you can email me or text me or whatever, but uh, sheep are defenseless. They have no sense of direction. They can't find food on their own. They're unclean. They're fearful. They're afraid of everything. And one of the number one characteristics of a sheep from my study of sheepery, if that's a word, is um, universally sheep are not smart. But nonetheless, the verdict's in, we are sheep. The question, I believe, David is, would say is, are you a sheep without a shepherd, or are you a sheep with the shepherd? King David says unapologi- unapologetically that he's a sheep, and his shepherd is the one and only God of the universe. First thing God would have us know about himself from this text, I believe, is that God is exclusive. I get it. I get it. I've been there. I know it's difficult to hear, but um, it's necessary to hear because it's true. Second thing I believe that God would have us know from this psalm as we're getting into it about himself is God is a provider. It's only four words here. It says, I shall not want. King David is saying that because the Lord of the universe is his shepherd, he has no wants. The implication is those who have, do not have the Lord as their shepherd have many wants. But I want to talk about this word want just for a moment because I understand that there may be some confusion About exactly what it means, and I want us to understand it correctly, not correctly as our world understands it, but correctly as the Bible and this text is communicating it, okay? The word want, as used here, does not mean that if the Lord of the universe is your shepherd, that you will receive everything you want. But what it means is that you will not want for anything that you need. It's a big difference. And, and, and the world we live in and, and the time and the culture that we live in, the whole economic system that we live in right now is built on this whole thing. What it does, and, and you've seen it and you understand it, they try to create a, a, a felt need, right? So we get all this advertising trying to catch us and trying to push into us um, felt needs, and then they tell us, you know, how they alone can satisfy that, that felt need. So you get a lot of people going around wanting things that they don't need, and I would love to tell you that I am above all that, but, you know, quite frankly, man, I get tripped up on this stuff all the time, like, man, you know, so, so, okay, man, there's so many examples, but, so, okay, so, so like um, I got an iPhone, all right? It's got a little camera on it, and I take pictures. I was, you know, at the zoo, the, the Chattanooga Zoo, Star Wars day to taking pictures of Yoda and all that stuff with my kids, you know, because it'd be weird me doing it by myself, you know, but uh, either way, so they're good pictures. They're good pictures. But I guess a month ago, this commercial comes on about the new phone and the new camera, and it's got, 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 got a picture of what portrait mode, and, and so I'm like, oh man, my kids, I gotta take pictures of my kids with the, the portrait mold, man. What kind of father would I be if I didn't have the portrait mold? And it's so weird because before I saw the commercial, I was unaware that I had that need, but they so conveniently showed me that I did have that need and then they did me a great favor by telling me how I could fulfill that need. Oh, So we gotta be careful. But church, please, no, that's, that's not what David is talking about in this psalm. He's not. That's not what he's talking about. He's referring to the fact that God has provided everything you need spiritually. You lack nothing spiritually. He has provided for all your spiritual need. He loves to see his flock spiritually healthy. In the word of God, it tells us to cast our cares on him because he cares for us. Let me just share... Just two quick verses. We don't have time to get into these, but I just like hearing them. They're comforting. Here's what Jesus says in John 10, verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. John 10, 27, he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I look. Know them, right? He provides, he cares, and they follow me. He loves his flock. And he has provided all that we need. So spiritually, all right? So we see first, I think, from this scripture, this psalm, that God is exclusive. We see that God is a provider. And next we're going to see in getting into verse 2, the first eight words of verse 2, we're going to see that God is all-satisfying. says this, He, that's the good shepherd, Makes me lie down in green pastures. Let's pause on this. This is speaking to the big picture. There's some little things we're going to cover, but the big picture is that God is all-satisfying. Now, the people of God, I will sit there and I'll say, God is all-satisfying, and every one of them in a chorus will say, Amen, but the truth is quite a few are not living as though God is indeed all-satisfying. Let's look at this. First two words, he says, he makes. I find comfort in that. You see that the good shepherd is the active agent in making me lie down. Right? He is the active agent. I find great comfort in that. And then it says, what does he make me do? He makes me do lie down. I want to talk about that a minute. Because once again, this is something I was thinking about. I was thinking about. He Actively makes me lie down, okay? Here's a fact about me. I've already alluded to it, but you may be a bit surprised about this, but um, I am no expert on sheep. And you all go, what? Right? I know. It looked like I would know more about sheep. I don't. I don't. I, know. I don't know much about sheep. But when I got to this, I realized there's two things I do know about sheep, okay? I'm going to... Sh- okay. I am going to share with you my extent of the, the extent of knowledge I have on sheep before I've studied this., okay, This is all I need.. Okay. First thing, first thing I know about sheep is this: OK. Um, if you're in the Middle East ever and um, you have the opportunity to eat a sheep kebab that's been on a pita over an open fire and you just slap some hummus on that, it tastes delectable. All right? So sheep can taste really good. I've never had any good tasting sheep here. But sheep can taste good. I know that, all right? I know that. Second thing I know about sheep, all right, is you can't train sheep. Like, you, can't, you cannot train a sheep to lie down. Like, I've never been to a circus, and since I have kids, I've been to quite a few circuses. I've never, I've never seen no sheep being trained. They don't do no tricks. Like, you can, get a do- you can get a dog to lie down. I've even seen elephants be made to lie down. I don't think I do that anymore because I think, you know, that's not humane. But nonetheless, I've seen it. But I've never seen no sheep. You cannot make sheep lie down. So I found it curious that the, the, the Scripture says that he makes sheep lie down. And I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking from my knowledge, you can't make a sheep do much of nothing. Well, I did some studying. And I found out that you can, sheep can lie down, but certain conditions have to be met. For a sheep to lie down, they have to have plenty to eat. They have to have their thirst quenched. There can't be any threatening wild animals or biting bugs. They have to be exceedingly well taken care of and provided for. They have to be satisfied. And we see here that the one that's making them lie down is all satisfying, the good shepherd. He's all-satisfying. And then notice this. Where does he make them lie down? It says, green pastures. So I started thinking, what might these green pastures be? That this good, all-satisfying shepherd is making the sheep lie down in. Well, I've come to the conclusion that the green pasture represents both God and God's word. You see, Christians, we do not have to worry about lying down in green pastures because we have the Word of God. And it contains everything we need for our spiritual health. Every rock that you turn over in God's Word contains food for the soul. It is a field ripe and green for the taking. The problem is, we've got a lot of guys who just don't want to partake. They don't want to read. They don't want to feast on the word of God. God says rest. God says lie down in my green pasture Feed on me. And some of us say, no, I think I will pass. And I know this to be a fact. It matters. Guys, I've said this over and over again. I've said it this way. I've said it matters who you roll with. It matters who your crew is, and it does. And I would say this. It matters where you lie down. It matters because where you're lying down is where you're going to be eating and what you eat and what you partake of, it's going to produce traits in you. Okay, let me share this. I, I'll share this with you. I, got, I know, I got some more agric- agricultural knowledge I want to share with you from my deep, vast well, okay? So um, I, I, this isn't about sheep, but somehow it applies here, I think, and it probably applies to sheep. So um, in Africa... Specifically, um, if you want any milk, right? You want some milk. You want some local milk. um, What you got to do is you got to find somebody with a cow, and they got to sell you some milk. That's how it goes. You want local milk, you got to go find people with cows, and you got to get your local milk, and they give it to you. And people like, you know, what about botulism? I don't know, dude, but something's got to go in my coffee. and I don't really care. Give me some milk. So so what you find out is um, everybody... Depending on what they feed their cows, their milk tastes different. It does. It does. And so, um, I'm going to pass. Hey, I'm going to. I'm going to. You can thank me for this knowledge later because it's going to be so useful for all of you. I've. This is. This was hard fought for, but um, um, I feared that perhaps I might pass and no one received this. So here you go. Um, in um, Africa, so we could travel to different regions. In every region, the milk's going to taste differently. But there's this one region in north, in, in north Tanzania, um, south of Kenya, uh, a, a city called Moshi and the Chaga tribe is there. And they've got, they grow a lot of bananas, tremendous bananas, okay? The bananas are great. But evidently, evidently what they do there is as, as, as the leaves of the banana tree fall off, they gather the leaves of the banana trees and they feed it to the cows that they milk, all right? Here's what I discovered. Cows that eat banana leaves have horrible milk, man, horrible it's horrible once again you tuck that away okay (laughs) so i don't know maybe it'll be useful to you but it is and so i could sit there and i could tell man we're in we're in moshi and i'm like man we gotta go we gotta get milk from a different region because it tastes so so bad here but the point of that is this it matters what you eat it matters where you lie down at and so what you get is you get people who say they're Christians are born again, and maybe they are, but they're not partaking of the green pasture. And then they wonder, and they're surprised when they look like the world, and they taste like the world, and they act like the world, and they love the things that the, 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 Lord, that the, that the world loves. Here's something. Uh, we're going to stop here. I've got to say one thing that, that causes me some trouble in my head. I find it troubling that many of us love entertainment that our God hates. And I think you we would be well-served to pray through, am I engaging in entertainment that my God finds offensive? And I can't talk about this too much because we'll go a long ways. But here's the deal. Some people, when I say that, they'll say, they'll say, they'll say, that's legalistic. And I say, you've got a wrong understanding of legalism. Legalism is, here's legalism. Legalism would say you got to do A, B, C, D, E, and F, and if you do those four things, five things, then you can approach God. That's legalism. But if I sit here and I tell you that God hates this, that's not legalism. It's not legalism. I'm always grateful. Men and women throughout my life have stood before me and told me things I did not want to hear, but they were truth. And at first I push, but I'm telling you, my joy was always found in hearing these difficult things. Let's get back on track. Ready? we got one more thing. God is exclusive. God is a provider. God is all satisfying. Fourth thing, and this is what I love about my God. God is gentle. He's gentle. Actually, this is going to speak into what I was just talking about. He leads me beside God. Still water. Once again, it's really comforting that you see the one, the active agent in the leading is the shepherd. Notice, it doesn't say he drives his sheep. It doesn't say he beats his sheep. It says he leads. He's gentle. I remember when I was in seminary, I was blessed to intern um, at the church of uh, one of my seminary professors, and I went on to be the associate teaching pastor there. Amazing man, I loved him. He influenced me greatly. But I remember this, and I was talking to Pastor Tony about this this last week. But I remember, I remember him sitting me down. He's a big guy, a big beard. He looked like Moses to me. That's what I remember. But um, he just looks at me and he said this. He goes, "Travis, shepherds never beat the sheep; and they lead." And we see that here. The chief shepherd is not a beater of the sheep; he leads sheep. The fact is sheep can't lead themselves. Neither can we. We run over one another the needs of one another. We make a mess of things. We create drama where drama should not be created. right? We, we continually find unhappiness for us and, and, we, and we tread over people. We need a shepherd. We need a shepherd. And look where this shepherd is. That's what I love. Not not only does this scripture say this, I've experienced this. Check it out. He leads them somewhere. Look, it says he leads them to still waters. Oh my goodness, I love the still waters. I love them. This is a picture of peace, soul-satisfying, bone-deep peace. Now don't misunderstand. It's not a picture of the easy life. He's not saying get an easy life, but he is saying there is peace in this life. And we've got a shepherd that gently leads us. Now, this is going to pick up on what I talked about just a moment ago. Because some will come and they'll say, uh, you know, I want to be led to still waters by this gentle shepherd. How does he do that? How does he guide us? The primary way, please hear me, that the good shepherd leads us is through his commandments and his teachings and the laws of the Bible. That is the primary way. The problem is that many of us think that the laws, the commands, the teachings, and the precepts taught by God in the Bible are there to still our joy. Like, we don't look at them as though they're leading us To steal water. But they are. They are. that's what they're there. They're there for. Jesus says this in John 10.10. He says, I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Okay? So that means that all the laws and all the commands and all the precepts and all the decrees proclaimed by God to us are there to lead us to the abundant life. We need not push back against them. We we don't need to do that. Um, So... um, we, we, we look at them and, we're like, that's how do I get to still waters? How do I find these still waters? When well, you read the Word of God, and He's very clear with them. I can give you many examples. I'll begin with probably the most popular one. I say it's popular because this is the one that people come and have the hardest time with sexual purity. God says very clearly, You want to find, se- you want to find still waters? I've laid out my design for, for, for sexuality. You stay within that, you will be led to still waters. You go outside of that, you will not find still water. So remember, anytime you're reading anything in the Bible, anytime the Bible speaks into any aspect of your life, know, it, know that it is there to lead you to still water. And that goes for in your marriage and your finances. Oh, here's a beautiful one. The Ten Commandments. Think of it this way. The Ten Commandments are there there's many, several reasons. But one of the reasons they are there is that it leads you to steal water. Don't lie. That's going to lead you to steal water. still waters. Not to steal water because, you know, we got plenty. But anyway, the point is, it's there for you. Okay, so four truths about God from the first two verses that I think he would have us know. One, God is exclusive. Two, God is a provider. Three, God is all-satisfying. For God is gentle. We're going to pick up next week. But before we close out, I want to read the first two verses together. Let's have them up here. Let's read this. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. The final question is, I would say, is he your shepherd? Is he your shepherd? Let's pray.
0: Well, I hope this was helpful to you. If while listening, you realized you need to take the next step in your relationship with Jesus, we would love to help you with that. You can connect with us by clicking the link in the show notes to our website and then clicking the connect card button. In our weekend worship services, we are in a sermon series called the seven commands of Christ. Jesus gave dozens of commands and as followers of Jesus, we should obey all of them. Over the next several weeks, we are focusing on seven that will change your life. We would love for you to join each week at one of our campuses, or you can attend online. You will find service times by clicking the link in the show notes to our website. You know, there's so many ways for you to get involved and be a part of what God is doing here at Silverdale, and we really want you to feel welcome and a part. So please stay connected. Be sure to like and follow us on the different social media accounts. You'll find all the links in the show notes of this episode. And lastly, help us spread the word about this podcast